Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. The English people are being betrayed. Under the influence of dangerous new foreign ideas, a tiny minority of metropolitan intellectuals are trying to undermine our national history and destroy our traditional culture. Never before has our identity been to... You get the gist. So this is England in the 1530s, it's England in the 1640s, England in the 1700s, the 1900s, the 1960s, and now once again in the 2020s. Welcome to The Rest is History with battle-scarred culture warrior Tom Holland and me, the far more nuanced and reasonable Dominic Sambrook. Dominic, hello, Tom. Dominic, you're... you are so battle-scarred in the culture wars. I mean, you write for the Daily Mail. <laughs> That's the essence yeah. of a culture warrior. Okay, you're going to go there straight away. Fair enough. Now I know where we, <laughs> I know where we stand. I'm hacking so you down we're early. Talking, we're, um, we are going to get into the history of culture wars, aren't we? We're not, well, maybe we'll fight some culture wars in the second half of the pod, but maybe the, the start with, I think it's really, this is such a hot topic, and I think we should really sort of get into what culture wars are, are they confected? You know, where do they come from historically? And we might as well start, I think, Tom, with a question. So we've got a question from Gilberto Moorback, who says, what is the first instance of a culture war? He says, it's not the Kulturkampf, which is Bismarck's war against the Catholic Church itself. Now, I don't think it is. I think culture wars are as old as history itself. And I think they go back to, you know, what are the Greeks and the Persians but a culture war? What are the arguments within the Roman Republic but a culture war? But maybe, Tom, you disagree. I do disagree because I think that if you use culture war to mean the war between two different cultures, I mean, every that, that's every war. Every war is, is bringing different perspectives, different cultural understandings, different cultural assumptions. So you might just as well say war. I th- I think but that- that's not that's not quite. But the, the idea of um, that's not really what I mean. What I mean is the argument about what who should we be, what are our values, what's our identity. I mean, Greeks did argue about those things, and Romans argued about them and said, you know, are we becoming too Greek? Are we becoming too Persian? Are we betraying our ancestors? Are we living up to our history? All those arguments which we have as Britons right now or Americans. They are as old as history itself. But you see, I, th- I think that's like saying that Julius Caesar conquered France. It, it, it's kind of true, but it's also missing quite a lot. And I think it risks anachronism. So okay. I, I, d- I do think that the, the culture camp, you know, it, it begins with, yeah, it, it basically it does begin with, with Bismarck and the, oh, I don't the, the conflict with, with, the, uh, with, with the Catholic Church as a concept, as a category, and perhaps you can then back project that in a certain way. But I think that, that essentially the, the the culture war that Bismarck is engaged in is over the the limits of um, religious authority over a secularising state. So I think it's about the tensions between the secular and the self-professingly Christian. But, what but, an but, but, astonishing but, surprise. Yeah, <laughs> but, but as, you, as, as you will know, of course, the, the concept of the secular is itself a Christian one. So what I would say, a culture war is basically it's sublimated theology. So it, it, it is generated out of, uh, out of a, a specifically Christian context, but it's a, a, a context in which one side no longer recognises itself as being Christian. So it's a kind of post-Christian war. 
So that's I so think. Tom, so you, I think that, that all the culture wars when... in America, they are yeah. essentially all revolving around issues of Christian theology. It's just that one side doesn't recognise that, and one side does. But let's go back for Tom. I, I want to go back further before let's, before we get back to Bismarck and Christianity and stuff. Are you saying that when in in the sort of the later days of the Roman Republic, which you've written about, you know, so successfully, um, when people are arguing that the the founding ideals, the sort of puritanic, what they see as the puritanical ideals of the Republic have been lost and they are arguing about um, what they see as the luxurious effeminacy and decadence of the modern age and, you know, people like Cato are arguing against what they see as the sort of the new people who are un-Roman and all that stuff. You don't think there's a culture war element to that? You really don't. I, I think it's more about political style, because that's the essence of. But, isn't that's, that, it. but that's what culture wars are about. I, now. I'm not sure it is, because I think that it, it's it's about. I th- I think that baked into our understanding of culture war, and it, unless it's going to become something so kind of broad-reaching that it just becomes nebulous and pointless, is the idea of progress. It's the idea of whether you are on the side of progress or not. So it it requires people who feel them that that they're progressive, and people who feel that that progress is actually a form of loss so a kind of conservatism there are of course you know there are people who define themselves absolutely as conservatives in 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 rome but yeah well, cato would be a great example but, but, C- I mean, C- 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 no, who... but caesar is not um he he's upholding a kind of style it's a it's a kind of flash it's a kind of um a, an appeal to the tastes of the people but it's not going against the very idea of Rome. It's not kind of formulating the idea that there are customs and practices that are superseded that should be jettisoned. I think if you want, so if you want um, I, I, the closest approximation to a culture war, I think that you get in in Roman history is one where where Christian ideas about what a society should properly be is it are coming up against traditional Roman ideals because that genuinely is a kind of a clash. And I think that the Christians who are opposing certain aspects of Roman culture are doing it in a way that we could perhaps define as progressive. They're kind of saying uh, okay, things to, can yeah. be improved, things can be better. And um, the, 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 the traditions that you are, are upholding are antiquated and should be jettisoned. So, so the- well, I wanted to ask you about that when Christianity comes in, because there, surely you have, you must have a sense. I mean, it's very hard to get hold of that now because our sources are so limited. But you must have a sense of people in there in Rome in the days of Constantine the Great and his successors. Well, I suppose more his successors who are saying, you know, I was always brought up to believe X, Y, and Z, and and now, yeah. Everything that I believed has been turned on its head, and isn't it awful that these shrieking, strident people in this case the christians are taking our country from us i mean they wouldn't have said our country but you know our world from us and turning everything on its head i just believe what what people believed 20 years ago and suddenly that i'm told yeah. that's all wrong i so, don't even know what the right words are so, you know we, we know the lingo so aren't they saying exactly that then so, so what christians are bringing in to the to the party is first of all the idea that there is a kind of universal identity that transcends the local so rome Roman traditions are not that important they relative to the the good news of 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 uh, that Christians bring which are which is pro- which are properly universal um and also the other the the other idea is that um 
certain aspects of Roman culture are, are not just kind of ir irrelevant, but literally demonic and therefore have to be abolished in the name of, of something that perhaps rather anachronistically we could call progress because Christians would see the removal of the demonic as improving life for um, society and everybody within it. So is that things like gladiatorial, yeah, but, gladiatorial but, games, but there's one, slavery? The, the, there's, one, there's one particular kind of incident which is, which is famous, which takes place in the late 4th century. There is a, an altar in the Senate House um, called the Altar of Victory, which serves as a symbol for the Romans of their, their the glories of their past. So there's a statue of victory, Nike, which dates back to the wars with Pyrrhus, um, so, so before the time of Hannibal even. Um, and the altar itself is, has been put there by Augustus to celebrate his victories over, over Antony and Cleopatra. So it's absolutely, you know, it, it's Nelson's column. It's, it's everything that the Romans kind of see as embodying their martial glory. Statue of Churchill. Statue of Parliament absolutely. Square. And the Christians hate it because it's... Um, it, it, it requires people to to offer to burn incense to offer sacrifice to the, these gods who the, who Christians see as demonic. So they're constantly agitating to have it removed. Um, and three five seven Constantius II does remove it. Um, then he's succeeded by Julian, um, who is notoriously known by the Christians as the apostate because he wants to reintroduce paganism. So he he brings it back in. Then it gets removed again in three eight two. And the emperor who does that, a guy called Gratian, then dies in a coup. And his half-brother, um, Valentinian II, is then petitioned to, to bring it back. And the reason that this is, um, is, is very well documented is that we have both sides. So we have a guy called Symmachus, who is a, a, a senator, a pagan senator, who's writing to the emperor and saying, look, you know, live and let live. Um, Christians can have their churches. Why can't we have our altar? Sure, sure that's fine. And then we have the, the, the response from St. Ambrose, who's the Bishop of Milan, saying we cannot negotiate with this because this is demonic. It has to be got rid of. We have no, no compromise at all. And I think there you do see a kind of a proto example of the contours that the culture wars in our society will, will take on. The sense that, that certain things for those who are identifying themselves with uh, what we might call the progressive cause is non-negotiable that and and that the, the the detritus of the past cannot just be tolerated it has to be removed so i think that well, Tom, that's... i think you've you've, you've brilliantly <laughs> disproved your argument <laughs> no, at I the haven't. beginning of the I program haven't because, I, because because you've no. just pre i mean that to me is utterly compelling i mean that sounds completely recognizable ambrose is well is, is woke and the other yeah. fellow is unwoke so, and never the so, yeah, so what I, what no I, compromise so, between so, so what i would what i would grant is that there is a there are certainly cultural war elements within christianity's relationship to the pre-existing society and it's there for instance also in the anxieties that christian philosophers and theologians feel in their attitude towards pagan literature so um, so in the, in, in the 10th century, there's an abbot of Cluny who has a dream in which he sees a vase and it's full of coiling snakes, three coiling snakes. And he wakes and, and an angel appears and says, these snakes are Virgil and Horace and Ovid. So you must get rid of them. 
Meanwhile, simultaneously uh, in Ravenna, you have people who are, who, who, are, who are saying that actually we should be studying Virgil rather than the Gospels because they're much better. So that, that I guess, is a kind of, you know, there are kind of prefigurings there of, of, of trends that we recognise. But I think that basically what, what is happening there is that it's the tension between a fundamentally Christian society and a society that is that is not identifying itself as Christian. And I think that... And do the, the Christians the, in, it, cancel stuff? Do they want to cancel literature, well, for example? Not really. Uh, some do, but but it's a kind of minority. But there's always a slight ambivalence around it. And I think that, you know, there are kind of, I, I mean, I, w- I would argue that the, say, you know, people giving giving um, uh, warnings before, trigger warnings before studying Ovid or something in a, in a 21st century American university, that there is a kind of echo there of the ambivalences that Christians felt, say, towards Ovid or, or Virgil in late antiquity and i think that essentially it's but in both cases it's bred of deeply christian assumptions about both the universal and the progressive and i think that those are the keys what you also get in this period tom well sort of late antiquity early medieval is a huge amount of hullabaloo about images and and one thing that does strike me as a kind of continuity is that obviously there is a torrent of stuff at the moment about statues and about plaques to people and you know who you celebrate in the graven image and that's there in you know that's in there in byzantium and the arguments about iconoclasm and then there again i think don't you see the same kind of thing people who say well i've been brought up to believe x y and z i've always believed that these images were an important part of that they're, they're central to our our culture and our imaginative and religious our spiritual world and now these bastards are coming along and whitewashing them and getting rid of them just as they obviously later do in the reformation and that seems to me to be that's a fascinating impulse running through the last 2000 years constant battles about images and but, who you put up and whether it's right to put up an image at all but i was i was kind of thinking about this knowing that we were going to be talking about this and i i just kind of have this f- I feel that that's different because those are Christians arguing in Christian terms about what should be done. So the arguments about about icons in Byzantium and about images in the 16th century are people who who both accept that they're Christians on both sides. So it's it's arguments about theology where both are recognizing that they are arguing about theology. I think but they the don't think the other people are good Christians, though, do they? No, they, they don't. They really they don't, don't think the other people are good Christians. But I think I think the definition of a culture war is where both sides are essentially debating theological terms but only one side one side doesn't recognize it okay so explain that to me you think one so, so the, on the is statues, one side pluralist the and the other not pluralist so on the sta- on the statue yeah. on the statues issue um there is there is absolutely of course christian culture introduces a huge ambivalence about statues and the idea of putting up statues to memorialise great figures is is a very culturally specific one. Uh, it's it's one that the Greeks have and, and particularly the Romans have. So the, the Romans, Romans are, the yeah. Romans are always shoving up statues of their great generals and their great men. And essentially, the the the, the trend in modern Europe to do that reflects a kind of loosening of. Um, specifically christian understandings about what is acceptable in the public space so you in the it's in the it's in the 17th century really and then in through into the 18th century that you start getting people saying um you know we too have great men you know this is this this increasing identification with with particularly rome so so you know the 18th century is known as the augustan age 
So it's in the 18th century that you start getting people putting up statues of of great men, of generals and, and, kings, and yeah. kings, but also benefactors, Christian benefactors. Um, yeah. So so up they go, and that's why most of the statues in our public spaces are represent figures from the from the um, the 18th and the 19th and the early 20th centuries. Yeah, from because the age of empire. Yeah, because this is a this is a classicizing age. This is an age that is looking back to the Roman age. Now I think that the the anxieties around statues today are bred of kind of deeply christian ideas it's just that the people who are campaigning against it they wouldn't recognize that as being christian but essentially the the sense that we can't have a statue up because it 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 commemorates depravity and evil so if it's a slave trader or an imperialist or whatever you know this is very this is drawing on the assumption that that to to make a profit from slaves or to um to, to conquer vast reaches of territory and kill people while doing so is not something that is deserving of praise. And these are assumptions that are bred of the great heritage of our of of, of Christian history. Um but they they they've escaped that they they've kind of escaped the moorings of specific Christian doctrine and they now just kind of percolate in the air and people just kind of breathe them in. And, and and take them for granted but that i think is for me that's what i would see the culture wars as being is that it's 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 arguments about theology that do not recognize themselves as being arguments about theology so then when you go back to so let's go back to the the reformation um because i thought we'd spend a lot of time talking about the reformation because when when the the sort of the george floyd was killed black lives matter kicked off there was a you know ton of stuff. We were obviously in lockdown at that point. That was last year in the sort of middle of 2020. So it monopolized. It was the one story that wasn't the coronavirus, basically. And at that very moment, I was writing my children. This is a good plug, actually. I was writing my children's book about Henry VIII and his six wives. And so I was reading books about the Reformation, like Peter Marshall's great book, Heretics and Reformers, about a brilliant, one of the best history books I think I've ever read, about the English Reformation. And I was thinking to myself, how uncannily similar this is. You know, these accounts by sort of good Catholics of their their shock and yeah. their horror as Protestants with imported ideas, you know, clever, well-connected, affluent merchants and stuff, with European ideas that have travelled along the trade routes, um, you know that these are literate people who are saying, "No, everything you believed was wrong." You know, you should you should educate yourself, you should purge your church, you should do all this. And I thought there is such continuity here. You know, it's hard to tell where the news ends and this history book begins. I completely agree. You there don't is, see, no, there is yeah. absolutely there is continuity there. I, I completely agree. It's just that for me, the the word culture war is it kind of you know it it it's it, it's coined um in uh, um bismarck's germany and then as as it evolves with its use in america i th- i think that um of course all these all, all these trends all these wars all these battles are inherited from christian paradigms it's just that i think that what we mean by culture wars it 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 refers to arguments about theology that do not recognize themselves as being about theology whereas in the reformation they do so i completely agree that, that reading the accounts of of the iconoclasm in you know pro- towns and cities that are becoming protestant where people are going into cathedrals and smashing crucifixes and and kind of mocking statues of the virgin and chucking statues of saints into the, into the river i mean it is kind of 
shocking, but it's done in overtly theological terms. The justifications for them are, are given in terms of scripture and theology. That's not what happens now. So when people argue about um, trans rights or about um, statues or abortion or whatever, the arguments are framed often i mean often so abortion or gay rights or something like that it's it's often cast as you know it's christians against progressives so it's the the christians who are the conservatives now and it's the progressives who are turning their back on that as kind of benighted superstition but what i think is that the progressives are drawing just as much on that inheritance of christian history and theology as the, the the self-confessing Christians, it's just that they don't recognise it. So that that's that's what yes. I think. A, a, Alex Roberts is. will not approve of your argument there, Tom. Yes, yeah, so Alex um, Ro- Alice Roberts is absolutely a you know a figure who would be unthinkable in any other context except a kind of Protestant Christian one. But she doesn't she she doesn't accept that. But the, and that's what yeah, makes no, her. I, I mean, that, I agree that's what you. makes her a culture warrior rather than rather than a you know a, 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 a Christian contestant in an intra-Christian war. And such an entertaining comic figure. But anyway, um, so you, there's one other dimension to this, which I think is really interesting that you, I imagine, will completely reject. And that is the sort of more uh, overtly political dimension. So to me, I would, I would argue, and you clearly would disagree, that British politics has always been a kind of culture war. That the, I mean, this is what, for example, Robert Toombs argues in his book, The English and Their History. He argues that English politics specifically has always had this culture war dimension, that it's always been, there's always been a religious gap. You know, the, the Tories and the Conservatives are the kind of Church of England at, um, at the voting booth, and uh, that the sort of liberal left-wing tendency, particularly in middle-class life, has always been driven by kind of religious nonconformity and by the tradition of dissent. And actually... You know, when I look back at the the period that politics was born, that what we would recognise as politics, so you're talking about late 17th, early 18th century, I mean, it's shot through with arguments about sort of culture war kind of issues. I mean, the example, I know you've read this piece that I wrote a few weeks ago for Unheard about the Sacheverell case. So there you've got a preacher. You know, that that's the, the single biggest issue in the general election of 1710, um, and it's a preacher who has condemned the Whigs and condemned dissenters and the Tories pick it up and they run with it and they amplify it into a sort of major national political issue in a way that people now would say, oh, typical Tories confecting a culture war, all this sort of stuff. I mean, people are doing it right back then in the 17th, sort of 18th centuries. So to me, culture wars and sort of, you know, uh, partisan parliamentary politics have always gone hand in hand to some extent. I, I don't disagree, and, and I, I read, you know, you, I read your essay and thought it was fantastic. Um, and and this, people that, who haven't read it, 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 was, right there. it was in Unheard a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? I mean, re, re, I thought, and I thought it was fantastic, and it kind of really, really made me think about this. So, and what I think about that is that I would say that, um, say that the the disagreements, the conflicts, the tensions. The cultural arguments, say, in the period of the protectorate after the Civil War, where you have all these kind of rival religious denominations all debating with each other. I would not see that as being a cultural because I think that's still being conducted in in, in overtly Christian terms. But something like Whiggery that, that yeah. might evolve Wiggery out of that. Wiggery is progress. So Whiggery, yeah. it's, it's a kind of secular idea of progress. 
And that is absolutely coming up against the kind of Tory idea of the Church of England that it should be, you know, that, that, this, that this is anathema. So I, I, I do completely agree that I think that that is kind of, um, you know, that's the precursor to the modern culture war because with Whiggery you're getting the idea of of you know it's clearly a, a massively theological concept that could only have emerged and it clearly does emerge from from the uh, the the argument between um established church and and dissenters in the 17th century but it it loses it you know it slips that that mooring so I think that that kind of 18th century argument is it, I I completely accept the validity of that um and what what do you think about whether there's a sort of temperamental, as it were, um, impulse behind these things that we are we are all little, you know, Gilbert and Sullivan had this liberals or little we're all born little liberals or little conservatives. I mean, we're all born culture warriors. Do you not think to an extent we all have an an instinctive, even if you haven't thought about the issues or you're not steeped in the history or the theology or whatever. You know, people have an in, a very instinctive, visceral reaction to these things. Um, are they somebody who values tradition and conservatism and how things have always been done, or do they want to see themselves on, selves on the side of progress? And are they horrified at the thought of being, you know, on the wrong side of history and all that stuff? I mean, those things are quite that they're, they're they're quite innate, aren't they? Don't you think? Yes, but I think that. Um, it won't surprise you to hear me say this. I I do think that Christianity radically alters the terms of the debate because um, back in ancient times, basically everyone was a conservative. So even if they wanted to change things, and often, of course, they did. I mean, you know, constant process of change, but they would always justify it by saying that they were going back to the way that things were always done. So the Athenian, you know, when the Athenian democracy gets set up, this incredibly radical experiment they say well we're just going back to do what what theseus set up and <laughs> and, and 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 augustus when he in you know he, he he plants his autocracy on the rubble of the republic he says well i'm you know back to basics i'm i'm restoring the republic i'm restoring the way that things always were and i think that um that what changes with christianity and what and, and what is really manifest in our society now is the idea that actually change for its own sake becomes a good that 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 the that there is such a thing as an arc of progress and that you're either with that arc of progress or you're not so i agree that there is a kind of you know you ha either have a kind of you know you relish change and you enjoy the, the the excitement that it represents or you have a kind of instinctive shrinking from it and you just wish that things could stay as they were um and i agree that's a temperamental thing but i think that that what changes with with christianity is that that then becomes much more kind of ideological divide. And I think that, that we live in the kind of aftermath of that now. Um, I also think that we've possibly talked about this long enough and that we need a break. What do you think? I was just thinking that. I was <laughs> thinking about how I was going to get us into the break. Tom, I think you need to um, tool up, sharpen your weapons, and the battle will resume after this, uh, after a word from our sponsors. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History and welcome back to The Culture Wars, which Tom Holland and I are uh, engaged in right now. Tom, America. America, we've had a whole podcast about Americanization, so we don't need to do that again. But America clearly plays a huge part in The Culture Wars. Now, I'll tell you my thesis and then then you can reject it. Um, I mean, I think basically the, when the settlers and the, the, the sort of Puritans and stuff went to America, they took The Culture Wars with them and that... The arguments, all the arguments you see in America are descended from 17th, 18th century British, sort of English and Scottish arguments. And that what's happened is that America has now re-exported those arguments back to us. So we see them as American, but actually they are ultimately kind of Whig, Tory, good old cause, Civil War era kinds of arguments. So they're, and and they've survived in America in, in such a sort of, intense form because america is much more religious than um the uk is so the intensity of their culture wars it seems to me is a very religiously inspired thing do you buy that completely <laughs> yes i knew you. i would. do i could of course I very completely. good and i think that you know we talked about that in the americanization podcast that's one of the reasons why we're so susceptible to catching colds when american culture wars warriors sneeze is that Basically, we we have no natural immunity to it because because right. it came from us. Um, so I, I think, but again, I th- I think that that what has made culture wars in America particularly virulent is, as you say, that it, it, it they are it is a much more committedly Christian society than than Britain's been for a fair while, um, and I think that what happens in the sixties and 70s is that that religious culture mutates in a very very profound way in a way that is kind of analogous to the the 1520s really i mean it's a a a change in the fabric of christian thought on that scale beginnings of the reformation because what you what you get in in the 50s and 60s is the civil rights movement 
which is a deeply, yeah. deeply Christian movement, the Reverend course, Martin Luther the King. The Reverend Martin Luther King, yeah. Know, and um, his language is absolutely steeped in biblical narratives. So the language of Exodus, the idea that, that God leads slaves out of Egypt, that he's on the side of those who are oppressed rather than on the side of Pharaoh. Um, and of course, he's invoking Christ, the guy who dies the death of a slave all the time. Um, and essentially, that's what gives the civil rights movement its traction, is that um, he is able to to remind white American Christians that if there is no dual Greek, then there is no black or white in Christ. And, and um, white Christians accept essentially you know within limits accept the justice of that argument and and that establishes a template for other people who come from um uh, sidelined communities people who feel that they've been um suffering oppression from majority rule to do the same so uh, gay rights would be an example of that i guess even feminism would be an example of that both of which 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 gain enormous kind of sustenance from the example of of the civil rights movement and the campaign for racial justice but the the problem i guess for 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 practicing christians with feminism and even more with gay rights is that that the the arguments and the certainly the rhetoric rub up against a traditional christian understanding and kind of scriptural dictates in a way that the campaign for racial justice hadn't. And so what you get over the course of the 70s is that, um, you know, in culture wars, it, it forces people to take sides. And so people who are practicing Christians increasingly come to identify as conservatives, people who are who are under attack from people who are not Christian. And progressives, likewise, increasingly come to identify Christianity as being something repressive, um, negative, something that has to conservative, fossilized, something that has to oppressive, something that has to be uh, jettisoned. And so essentially those are the kind of the battle lines that, that you know, the trenches still run across America to this day, where you have people who say, I, I'm Christian, I hate progressives. You have progressives who say, I'm a progressive, I hate Christians. But basically both sides are articulating arguments drawn from the same kind of great seedbed of Christian thought. So I think, you know, it's it's not a Christian against progressive war. It's, it's, it's a Christian civil war. But what makes it a culture war in this? my light is that, is that only one side recognises that. Have you read this book by James Davison Hunter? So this is the book that, that enshrines the term culture wars, published in 1991, American sociologist. Um, now, what he basically I says is it's the clash between the orthodox and the progressive. He said, so he says you don't have to be a Christian to be on the orthodox side. You can you just believe in tradition. You believe in the nuclear family. You believe in, you know, your country in the military and all these kinds of things. And then there's the progressives. And he said that, the, you know, it's very hard to find that politics is increasingly being fought on, out on those lines. And that obviously now people, I mean, people talk a lot. So political scientists in Britain talk a lot about how the conservatives, for example, have moved um, from being a sort of the Thatcherite party, the party of neoliberalism, as people call it, um, to being one that fights on more overtly cultural grounds, cultural conservative grounds and people sometimes talk about that as though this is this tremendous new thing but it seems to me that politics has always been fought out on the there's always been the orthodox progressive particularly in america uh, in american politics i think that that tension has all, has kind of always been there it's only been there since the end of the second world war no doubt about that yeah and i think escalating since the 60s 
I think so. I think the 60s was a really crucial decade. But I thought also what was brilliant in your essay, which I also think is completely true, is that um, the culture war issues are a bit like personalities in politics, that politicians are always saying people aren't really interested in this kind of nonsense. People just want to talk about, you know, the inflation rate, or, yeah, yeah. Uh, NHS yeah. funding or something. But it's, it, it's, it's evident that culture wars kind of blaze into fire because for lots of people, they're enormous fun. Well, you have, I mean, you know, I have very strong views about this. So Do I you think have strong views, people, people who are interested <laughs> in politics, I think, I think one of the extraordinary things about people who are interested in politics is often they don't really understand. They're very interested in politics, but that makes them very bad judges of politics yeah. and how politics works because they're interested in it. So they, because they're super interested in politics, they think that, that, that everybody else is interested in the same things that they are. It's rather like um, somebody who's incredibly interested in a particular sport and in the sort of statistics of it, um, understanding what, what other people see in it. Often they don't. And I think with politics, these arguments that, that sort of political obsessives and kind of guardian colonists think are contrived and confected about flags and statues, you will ordinary people, as it were, ordinary people, I know I sound like I'm, I'm getting into my co my column writing um, <laughs> vein, but sort of, as it were, ordinary people, people who are not very interested in politics, find those in much more interesting subjects than exactly that, some some arcane discussion about inflation or something. They are, they are, they are very emotive, very powerful subjects and always have been. But And that's true the other way around, isn't it? That people on the left likewise are equally as obsessed by these topics as people on the right yes i suppose that's i think that's probably true they're they're, they're more emotive to people on the left aren't they but that raises that left right issue it raises another interesting dimension which i don't think quite fits with your theology thing which is a big element of the culture wars right now in britain are about britishness and about patriotism so orwell would have recognised all this because Orwell in the 1940s, he says, you know, he mocks Orwell. Orwell is the great man, of course. He's, he's every conservative columnist go to for kind of quotations because he's kind of on the left, but he loves nothing better than basically mocking other lefties. And he sort of says, you know, the British intelligentsia, they get their cooking from Paris and their opinions from Moscow. They would rather be seen stealing from a poor box than standing to sing God Save the King and all this sort of thing. And there's this interesting element of kind of national peculiarly national self-loathing you do get that a bit i think in america but you know the british i think lead the world i mean if we do lead the world in one thing it is self-flagellation about our sins and i wonder how that fits into your because i think that's there's a really interesting and strange thing at the heart of of britishness that it all, that has always been there to some extent which is a kind of we are uniquely sinful. The British project itself. Well, there you go. Is, is, I mean, you know, there's a the word sinful immediately. But then, but then you see, if it's Christian, why don't other Christian countries have it? Well, because the, the French, I don't think, have it to the same extent. You know, the Dutch are very proud of their empire. Um, all those kinds of. Th why don't other people have the same self-flagellating instinct that, let's say, the British intelligentsia have? Well, I think I think that uh, I mean it, every 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 country tends to be Christian in a different way, and okay, so there's a a kind of different inheritance, and I think that um, in Britain, precisely because it's been such a global power, and because its relationship with the broader world 
has been so formative, both for the British themselves, but also for um, people who have had the British turn up and and, and been yeah. formative on them. Um, <laughs> the the kind of tension that exists within Christianity, the, the the suspicion of of the specifically national and the embrace of the universal manifests itself in a distinctive way. So if you if you think if you you look back to the um the altar of victory essentially the argument is that um there is a universal christian identity that this is this is the answer and that um the the legacies of of kind of roman militarism and imperialism are specific are not ju- it's not just that they're specific to the romans and therefore not of universal import but also that they're malign and malevolent and, and that's always been a, a a deep strain within within christianity i mean it's what catholic means universal um but obviously i th- i think that there is a kind of huge human impulse to identify with the local over the universal at the same time and I, th- I think a huge amount of the argument in 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 Britain, therefore, revolves around that issue. Should you emphasise the the universal over the local? And well, it's the citizens of the world versus sorry, the, the, yeah. the citizens of somewhere versus the citizens of nowhere, isn't it? I mean, yes. that's the, from the Theresa May speech. Yes, I mean because that was an interesting one. Because now this is maybe the difference between us. When I heard that speech, I mean, I'm the only person in the world who would admit to this. Certainly, the only person who does a history podcast. I thought, yes, great. I completely agree with that. That sod the citizens of the world. But of course, most people who are you know historians who are kind of part of the literary world do see themselves as citizens of the world. They don't. There's a. There's a. They see the local as parochial, well, or as well, 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 as but, I'm constantly but, reading as xenophobic, or as you know as um, as nationalistic. But to, I mean, like to go that. back to, to to your 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 fantastic article about the the roots of all this in kind of early 18th century politics, um, the Whigs, as a marker of their their kind of progressive identity, kind of scorn Tory roast beef eating uh, yeah. patriots like yourself, Dominic. Um, and Dr. Johnson. <laughs> well, yes, to 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 a degree, um, and they identify with kind of French ideals. So, I mean, all the way through the Napoleonic Wars, you've got you know the Holland House, <laughs> aptly named. Yeah, they're all aptly named. Yes, aptly uh, Lord named. Lord Holland and, and and so on. They're all kind of you know Byron is writing poems lamenting the fall of Napoleon and and so on. There's yeah. a kind of identification. Sort of and yeah, yeah. The, the, a sense that. Um, that kind of uh, British Toryism is is not just um, parochial, but but kind of you know turpitudinous. That it's xenophobic. That, that and and therefore to be properly moral, you have to identify with um, with the ideals of uh, and and the cultures of of places beyond the shores of of Britain. And I think that's that's always been a, a, a huge trend, and it's always particularly appealed to intellectuals and writers and poets. So Shelley and Byron are, abs- you know, this is absolutely what they are articulating. And I guess that, that today is no different, that by and large, that's, you know, I mean, that's the metropolitan liberal elites. It is. That's, I remember, I, I, Tom, but, I remember but, but Holland House is in uh, the ninth- Holland House is heaving, with, you know, in the, in, the, in the Regency period, is heaving with metropolitan liberal elites, the equivalent of... I was of. about to say, I remember, I remember being at Oxford in the 1990s and hearing for the first time, so England were playing a World Cup qualifier or something, football, 
and hearing for the first time other students saying, how can you support England? You know, anyone but England, your own, your own country. And I, I was utterly dumbfounded because it was the first time I'd encountered this having sort of grown up and, you know, in the heart in a of Hobbit England, hole. as you know, yeah, in my Hobbit <laughs> in hole. The Shire. And, um, Again. and yeah, surrounded by <laughs> the ghosts of Nelson and um, Toby Jones. And, and all the, exactly. So I couldn't believe that there would be people who were clearly English who, who would not support their own. And they said it, it wasn't just the anyone but England thing. It was also they didn't agree with the principle of supporting your national team at all, no matter who you were. If you were Burkina Faso, they wouldn't agree with supporting yeah. your own team because they thought that was but why were they? In which case, why were they watching football? I mean, isn't the whole well, point weren't. of... They were, trying to, okay. they were trying to dissuade other people from watching it. They just thought the well, idea that's what of they always say. football... People always was... say about football is that it's tribal, don't they? I mean, we, we saw that with the whole yeah. debate over the Super League is, is that the essence, you know, the essence of the argument, which I thought was really interesting and in how rapidly everybody agreed with it, was that football clubs should be local. And you're right, you're, you're, you know, these sh- they, they shouldn't be the, the property of, of kind of global supporters, that really it's rooted in the... In the in in, in yes, the local I, communities, and suddenly that. everyone was I, becoming kind of Tory, you know, in the in the eighteenth century I sense. Quite, I th- I think what's quite interesting is that there were some people; their voices were completely drowned out in the end. But particularly in America, there were people, for example, who are, who are New Yorker writers and things who are interested in soccer because it's you know it's seen in America as as actually a bit more progressive than supporting American football or baseball, and and they were they liked the idea of the Super League. And they're kind of quite woke people, and it's for precisely that reason because it's they thought the idea of of the clubs being lifted from the communities and becoming national global yeah. things. Well, I mean, it shows part of that universalism, but also it shows they liked that. It, but also it shows that there is a kind of little conservative within within everyone that. If, well, isn't you know, it said that you're certain, always conservative? Certain about... things that when they get yeah. threatened, suddenly, oh, we've got to defend this. And we can't have this. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, exactly. Um, Let's have a quick question yes. that, um, from Alex Shiphorst. So he asks about generational. He's, he asks how much culture wars are generational. Now, you saw that actually with the Super League is a nice link to that because the Super League was supposedly set up uh, for younger supporters yes. who are more likely to be to be not so to be not so tribal and not so local, and also so not Alex to be able to cope with ninety minute games. Well, yeah. Which obviously, as a cricket so fan, supposedly... as a cricket fan, I was very worried about that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, of course. So, um, but of course, the man who was claiming that Florentino Perez is about 138, so I'm sure he knows the um, the, 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 the he's got his finger on the pulse of youth. Anyway, Alex Shippo says he's thinking about the 1968 protests in France, which do have, I think, a culture war elements in the protests against de gaulle and he says he's thinking about hippies and he's thinking about arguments today about lgbtq rights veganism etc etc so do you think there's a generational i do uh, how how yeah i, I completely so, do but and is and is that normal though yes. in a culture war i think so right um so what you get i guess is the standard is you get a a very um progressive ultra what you would say ultra christian younger generation and an older less christian um more orthodox more more conservative one is that right that's how well, you see the dynamic always working i think the dynamic has always been since the 12th century <laughs> <laughs> that that these kind of um impulses to purify the whole of 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 christendom the world to this kind of mission to improve everybody um Initially, of course, absolutely couched in overtly Christian terms. In the 12th century, this leads to the setting up of, of universities. Universities are basically founded to 
train people who can provide the kind of moral and legal frameworks that can then, then govern. as now, yeah, the madrasas of, of the and, culture yeah, war. And so what, what then happens is that you get young people going there studying, then going out to, to work as priests or clerics or whatever, and coming up against people who are going, what the hell are you talking about? I mean, that's essentially what the Albigensian Crusade is. The Albigensian Crusade is a targeting of the left behind, of deplorables, of people who are not up to speed. Oh, my God. With, um, with, so this you know, is with, the sort with, with of anti-racism yes. sort of uh, training people of, yes. of the of the medieval period. Yes, the Albigensian Crusade is a kind of very, very brutal, you know, it's it's like the, the student coming back and, and, and shouting at the father for using the wrong words um, on a kind of very, very militant scale. There's a sense in which the Protestant Reformation is the same and the French Revolution. And I think that you see exactly the same, that, it, that it, it's, it's in the, it's the universities. The role of the universities has always been to kind of educate and articulate progressive orthodoxies in a kind of radical new way. And inevitably, because it's, it's in the universities that train the teachers who go out into the schools, who then teach the young, who then go through the, the educational system, who then become the teachers themselves. And so it percolates outwards and outwards That's and outwards. So and so every generation you, you will find, I mean, I, you know, I used to think of myself as progressive, but now that I've got children, I know I'm not really progressive. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. I know, I know, I know. I, I, but, but also perhaps it's also because as you get older, you, you, you you regard as normal things that that you had in your youth, course, and therefore you, yeah. you you don't want them to change. Um, so I think also, that's Tom, also I don't, a part I don't of want it. To, I don't want to incriminate you on the podcast, but I think you were one of the first people I'd ever met who said to me it was just after the Iraq War or thereabouts, and you said um, you really liked Tony Blair because he made Britain look strong. <laughs> <laughs> well, he made he made Britain look, thought, he made he made he made Britain. I thought he made Britain look good in a, a kind of bicycle riding. That's not what you said at the time. You used the word. You used the word strong. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's the first person I'd met in the sort of literary world who used the word strong approvingly of a of a political leader. Well, there's, but, but there's a kind of muscular quality. There was a muscular quality to yeah, it. Yeah, no, no, which, which, which muscular you know, Christianity and, and a muscular kind, yeah, Christianity. a kind of a kind of self assurance and a sense of purpose, which I I must say I still slightly wistful for well now, well now that now that i've got you cancelled um i wanted to you asked about well, don't worry, i've never i've never i've never concealed my my admiration for no you haven't you haven't Tony. to be fair you were waxing lyrical about him in our prime ministerial um world cup so you were talking about universities and i think that's a really good point and it brings up paul duncan's question so paul duncan asked the question that i basically want the answer to because i want to i, I he says how are culture wars worn I need to know because I want. I will not rest until there's a statue of Field Marshal Lord Roberts in every market <laughs> town in England. But, um, but Paul Duncan says, if you're trying to win a culture war, are you? And it's a key question: Are you better off trying to change people's minds or to have your position enforced by the power structures of your time? And before you give your answer, Tom, I was thinking about the Reformation. I mean, the Reformation in England, the English Reformation, was was by and large, I would say, pretty unpopular. I mean, you've got the pilgrimage of grace. You have a series of risings, sort of prayer book risings and all these kinds of things. And the Reformation, it seems to me, wins because it's backed from the top or at least sort of very, you know, with a bit of ambiguity, but it's got the, the state behind it. But also because England is a very young country and people forget quickly. And by the time Mary tries to turn back the clock, to, she's a culture warrior of a very different kind because she's a kind of reactionary culture warrior, I suppose you'd say. Um, or at least I'd say, most a lot of the people who remember Catholic England are dead, and younger people have grown up knowing only Protestant England. 
So to some extent, it's just a question of outlasting your opponents and, and, and I guess converting the young, which is why I wanted to ask about universities. So do you think that is the way that you win a culture war through schools and universities? Or is it all kind of control of the state? You, you know, if Boris Johnson is listening and he wants to win his culture war, can he win without universities, I suppose is what I'm saying. I think the universities matter more. Uh, and that's kind of the Gramscian idea that you affect change through culture. And I would say that the most dramatic illustration of that, I mean, almost in the in the whole of history, actually, is the the um, evolution of attitudes to homosexuality over certainly my lifetime. Um, you know, it, it, a couple few years before I was born, it was illegal. Now, essentially, it's illegal not to support it. And, uh, you know, my again, my my children i think would would find it kind of incomprehensible to imagine you know that that living in a world where it was regarded as 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 criminal um and that's obviously um i th- i think that that's a kind of classic example of where the change of of public attitudes i think that was much more important than kind of individual politicians stepping in and, and oh absolutely changing. i completely um, i think isn't it aren't things like that and also anti-racism um, they're driven by sport. They're driven by fashion culture, and culture, far and... more than anything. Any, yeah, than any. But also, I think. Does. But also, right. I think uh, accepting the essential justice of a cause. That once, 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 a, once something becomes kind of you know attains a critical mass, then it becomes very, very difficult. I think to oppose it, and that's kind of what happens with the Reformation. It's what happens with the Christianization of the Roman world. That it that something can be quite kind of new and shocking to people in the, in, in the initial onset of this, this perspective. But once it beds down, it just becomes the kind of standard very, very rapidly. But it also is about, you want to, you know, people don't want to be viewed as eccentrics, do they, by and large? Um, people, people also, successful, talented people, or people who dream of being successful, they don't want to go, they don't want to espouse views that will lead to their cancellation as it were so by definition people as people come up the ladder yeah, I, they're more likely to to go with the the new orthodoxy rather than the old but i think it's more than that i think it's it's not even oh i better believe this or else i'll you know i'll get i'll get burnt at the stake or you know thrown out of my university post or something i think it's just people just think this is what i should think because of course i should think you know of of, of course the, the the pope is is antichrist um of course gay marriage is absolutely to be celebrated i mean it's just what you think so here's a here's a counter example though a, a, a huge culture war which we haven't mentioned at all fought in the course of the 20th century is communism's culture war on the old so they have control of the universities they have control of schools i mean they 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 have control in a way that today's culture warriors couldn't dream of um but it doesn't work uh, and that's an interesting that that lots of people they preserve somehow the old orthodoxies or the old views you know the pol- the poles and their catholicism for example so why do you think that cult that particular culture when they had all that apparatus of victory didn't work because it doesn't work economically does it so you think it was driven it was about the economics rather well, we than we talked about that in the, in the communism one that 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 um it's it's an attempt to create heaven on earth that rubs up against the fact that it's not possible and that essentially you know, a, a, a progress towards dictatorship perhaps is baked into the attempt to to impose it. Whereas, and let's end with this then. Go on. No, go no, on. no, 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 no. Go on. Um, 
So we talked about winning and losing. Does it have to be winning and losing or can there be compromise? You see, what I see all the time is now this is I'm, I'm now putting on my sort of um, popular newspaper hat. Uh, I see all the time sort of high minded people moaning and saying, oh, they hate the confected culture war. They they hate all this. But then in the next paragraph, they then say how determined they are to win it <laughs> and to crush their opponents and to strip museums of their problematic artifacts or whatever. So it seems to me they patently clearly like the culture or they just want to win it. Can there be a compromise in some of these things, do you think? Can societies find a way through? Or must it end with victory, as it did with the Christians, for example, in, in, again, in Rome or indeed in the Reformation? Must it end with victory for one side or the other? Well, I mean, you, you, you've argued that the roots of our contemporary culture was lie in the 18th century, in the Whigs against Tories. I mean, essentially, the lineaments of that argument, of, of, of that con- of that argument is still present today and there's a sense in which the parliamentary system the party system in britain evolves to create a dialogue between those two rival points of view so i would say yes absolutely because because in a sense i think that that you can see that there are the inheritors of of the whig and tory traditions of the 18th century are still going strong today and that in a sense the you know our, our parliamentary system exists to ensure that, if not necessarily compromise, then at least kind of, you know, that people can live alongside each other in the same country and have these arguments. I know you a disagree. You want, you want to live answer from Tom. I want a total crushing defeat of the Whigs. Okay, well, the culture. I warrior. used to like the Whigs, but 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 I've now just taken against them completely. Um, okay, so uh, this particular battle, I think Tom is over. You should retreat to lick your wounds. The war, of course. <laughs> you have the war, won. of course, continues. Um, <laughs> as indeed does this podcast. So we will be back, Tom, next week with the French Revolution. Another very good culture war. Uh, but before that, we'll be back. But before being, that. Before that, we're back oh, yes. with with, uh, po- with a podcast episode on a literal war, the Seven Years' War. So, seven Years' War. So, so Seven Years' State. War, not a culture war. Then the French Revolution, definitely a culture war. Definitely, yes. And then food with uh, Penn Vogler, very entertaining food historian. And food, of course, is a culture war of a different kind. Guillotines, pies, Seven Years' War, we've got them all. And that note's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.